All right. Well, welcome to episode five of the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. I'm your host, Guru Nishan. And before I introduce our guest for today, who is also born and raised in the 3HO community, like myself, I want to share with you the intentions for why I've started this podcast. <clears throat> there are 11 intentions and it is or organic, so they may change along the way. Um, number one, to break the veil of silence that is long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who joined this lifestyle, were born and raised into it, and or have practiced or taught Kundalini Yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from our community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we believe them, we love them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, to let teachers who are denying, gaslighting, or spiritually bypassing know that what they are doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing victims. Number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural misappropriation, and exploitation that perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle, and overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle internalized shame, guilt, toxic positivity, and light washing mentality. Number nine, to honor all of the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. Number 10, to honor every body that has come through our community, both named and unnamed. And number 11, to encourage people to do their own research, process their own emotions, get somatic therapy and other support as needed, to draw your own conclusions, and to be critical thinkers rather than just blindly follow anyone. Please remember that your story matters Please share it when you're ready. We're here to listen and support you. So today I want to introduce to you <clears throat> our special guest for episode five. His name is Dudham Kalsalitz. I hope I said your last name right. Jeez, I didn't even ask you that. Um, I'm, he's married to Wahi Guru um, Litz from Austria, who lives, uh, they live in Portland, Oregon, and he's a software engineer for Postmates. He lives with his two tabby boys, which I learned are his cats. And they're seven months pregnant with their first baby boy. He grew up in 3HO and went to school in India for 10 years. And he still considers himself a Sikh and part of the 3HO community. 2020 has been a transformational year to say the least. And in many ways has paved the way for him to be more authentic as he's put it for himself. So without further ado, I want to um, welcome Dudham. Thank you so much for being a part of our podcast today. Yeah, glad to be here. Thank you. Um, your voice has really rang um, loudly for me. I, I, I missed you actually sharing your story on the Zoom um, earlier this year. 
but you have been vocal and active in um, sharing your process. And I just wanted to start by saying, why do you feel it's important to speak out and share your story? <clears throat> um, well, those 11 intentions definitely spoke to me. Um, I feel like that sums up everything that I <clears throat> see as sort of wrong with or needing to change in our community. And so, um, yeah, you put it very succinctly and clearly. I'm, I'm, I'm really appreciating those intentions. Um, I think for me, uh, just this feeling of like sort of family or community or um, especially with kids that I went to MPA or India, you know, India kids, um, there's this really strong bond there that is, you know, perhaps stronger than, than family by blood, you know. Um, I feel like I would just drop anything to help them and do anything for them. And, you know, many of them would do the same for me. And so that bond, that connection is so important to me. Um, and yeah. I feel, I feel just like in light of everything that we're sort of realizing about how we grew up, that is just so important to like face it all with integrity and, and sort of, um, go through the whole process, understanding ourselves that way. Um, and I don't know, trying to be a voice of reason or a voice of truth in some way that I can. Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you. I think it's, um, I think it's so apropos that a lot of our generation and you're younger than me. So it's like when I, when we say second gen, there's several, there's like five generations of kids and we're all just kind of lumped into the born and raised group, you know? Um, but that we're approaching this, like with, you know, taking kind of the light of our truth, the light of kind of like what we heard, the satnam, like what does it mean to live truth and how do we shine this light and truth into some of these darkest shadows that are obviously so much a part of our upbringing as much as the bonds and the connections and the community and the, the history. So thank you. I, I think that um, your generation, our generation is doing a lot in this arena for our community. Yeah, there's definitely, I mean, I, I wrote a few poems about shadow this year and like I've read many and it's just like, yeah, wow, in such a big way we're sort of seeing and recognizing and addressing the shadow of our community, of our history. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, why don't you uh, take us back, give us some history, um, some context in terms of like when you were born, age group, and then, you know, some story of around what happened in your life. What's been your experience? Yeah. So um, I was born 1986 in January in Brooklyn, New York. Um, there was a, an ashram in Bergen Street. Um, and my father is Sri Vishnu and my, my birth mom, uh, Waigadukar, uh, they were living in that ashram. Um, they had been married for a few years. Uh, I was the only child that they had together. Um, <clears throat> we moved, uh, they bought a house on Wyckoff Street that became sort of like a, an additional semi-ashram. And, and my dad was working with Gurdon for the construction business they had in New York, Nonix Construction. Um, and my mom was, you know, doing things around the house, making music. Um, and 
yeah, they were living that three HO ashram life, you know, every day, yogi tea, sadhana, 3 a.m. and um, <laughs> the intensity of that. Um, so that was the first couple of years of my life. Uh, when I was three years old, um, there was like a, yeah, I'm, I'm actually unclear if my mom cheated on my dad. That was the story that I was told. Um, and she recently denied that that happened, but it's kind of unclear to me. So I'm still getting clarity on that. But um, in any case, there was a, a rift in their marriage and they went to Yogi Bhajan. And Yogi Bhajan had kind of been lobbying for my mom to come sort of become a secretary of his for uh -huh. like even before they were married um, for many years. And so at that point, Yogi Bhajan was like, all right, there's nothing you can do to fix this marriage. Uh, why, you know, why do car you're coming with me and Sri Vishnu, you're going to raise your son, you know, uh, she's done enough for him. She's not needed anymore for his raising. And so she went to Espanola and lived at the ranch. Um, and she's written a book about those three years of her life from when I was three to when I was six. And uh, she, you know, I'd been in touch with her my entire life, um, but she had never told me that story. I mean, she alluded to that story and you know, she called Yogi Bhajan a sexual predator. Um, wow. Was, yeah, that he wasn't to be trusted and that he wanted her for himself, but she never really explicitly said you know, he sexually abused me or he, you know, did things to me. And so, you know, her story is very compelling and has given me a lot of closure and understanding about those few years of my life and what she was going through really like gave me a lot of compassion for what she's been through. She's been through a lot and it's pretty, um, yeah, it's pretty heart-wrenching uh, to read her experience. Um, yeah. Because uh, she was in a lot of pain uh, and being separated from me and from our family and everything. Um, so on my side of the world, though, I'm still in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, my dad ends up... <laughs> Yogi Budget actually told him, uh, a tall blonde lady will show up and she'll help you take care of your son and be like a, a sort of like pseudo wife for you in the meantime, while Waigadukar is studying with me in Espanola. And so he kept calling Yogi Bhajan like, hey, uh, you know, is this the one? <laughs> Saw a tall blonde today. <laughs> and uh, Yogi Bhajan's like, no, it's not that one, not that one. And then at some point, I don't know, maybe like a month into it, he's like, yeah, that's the one, you know? And so he just starts basically dating this lady while he and my mom are still married. And nobody in Brooklyn, like the rest of the 3HO folks, none of them knew about it. So they're like, what the hell is Sir Vishnu doing? Like cheating on Waigadu car. And Yogi Biden's like, oh, let them talk shit about you. It's your karma. You know, you don't, you don't have to worry about it. Wow. Yeah, just the layers of like control. <laughs> going on is is pretty yeah that's crazy um anyway she was really sweet to me uh and 
uh, really like a loving mom. And that was exactly what I needed. And uh, they ended up having like a wedding, uh, I think in Massachusetts or something. And that's like, I think my earliest memory it was like them getting married. So I think it was pretty significant for me. Um, but shortly after they got married, she just kind of lost it and got in like these huge fights with my dad and started like slapping me and, and just like, yeah, she just like did a full 180, you know, uh, <laughs> it's really he just a yoga student. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, and that was, that was hard. My dad said, I told him that she was ruining my life. And so he was like, yeah, this is not working. You got to leave. And props to my dad for doing that, you know, for actually listening to me at that age. You're um, about four at this point. Yeah. Four or five. I'm not sure. Yeah. Oof. And so, yeah, it was just me and my dad for a while. I think we kind of bonded around that time. Um, you know, he and I got really close and, um, and then I, I turned six, I was going to go into first grade. And I think he decided that like India would be a good place for me. Like he's been sort of trying to juggle, you know, being a single dad, you know, with doing sadhana and everything else and working, you know, 28 hours a day at the construction business and was just like, okay, like all these other families are sending their kids to GRD in India. So you know, my son can go there. Yogi Bhajan says it's the best way to raise your kid. Right. And so, you know, even though he doesn't want to go, like, this is the best thing for him. And I just need to get over myself. And so he flew me out to India and was there for like, I don't know, I think like a week or two, we sort of like traveled around a little bit. Um, and then we went to GRD, kind of got me settled in and then just got on a bus and took off and uh he shared that memory with me of like you know getting on a bus and looking out the window seeing me like crying running down the street after him and he was just like he was like yeah my whole body felt like it was just breaking in half you know like after everything we had been through and uh wow yeah i think i you know i understand you know why you made those decisions but um if I could, if I could change one thing, I would say, I, I wish he had listened to his heart in that moment, you know? Yeah. It was a bad decision, you know, uh, it was a very bad decision. Um, so young, had been through so much already. Yeah. So, so I did, I did first and second grade at GRD. Uh, so this was like 93 to 94 and um, about a month after I started school, I got a letter in the mail saying, Hey, you have a new stepmom. I married a uh, kid in from LA. Who's like the grunty from LA and, uh, she's going to move to New York and she's your new stepmom. <laughs> and by the way, you have a stepbrother who's at GRD. And so that was like, yeah. Wow. I went and like knocked on Gramustic's door, which, you know, I was like scared shitless. It was like, you don't knock on seniors doors. Like that's a good way to get a beating. So he so, was a senior at the time. Yeah. He was in uh, 12th grade, which basically meant he could just do whatever he wanted. Um, and so, yeah, I went and knocked on his door. I was like, Hey, I guess we're brothers now. <laughs> and 
he's like making grilled cheese sandwiches in his room, which was like, yeah, that's like heaven. And he's like, yeah, it's awesome. Here, have a grilled cheese sandwich. I was like, wow, I love you, man. This is, <laughs> that's like the best thing he could have ever done. You know, I like, I like quickly ran, I like stuffed it in my pocket and like quickly ran around a corner to eat it. You know, <laughs> that's how it worked. Uh, <laughs> didn't want to get it. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. India was rough. Uh, GRD, especially, you know, I got bullied a lot and, um, so tell us about that. So you were just saying a few months into being in India, you're mm -hmm. in like what, second grade? This was first grade. This yeah, is first was... grade. So you're about five-ish? Six. Six. Mm -hmm. And um, you find out you have a new stepmom, obviously a new brother, stepbrother, and now you're in India. So now stop, tell us a little bit about the India experience. So there was uh, me and two other boys and... Uh, two other girls that were in my class. Um, <clears throat> and the three of us boys, I mean, we were in a dorm with, I wanna say like 25 or 30 uh, Indian kids our age. And the rift between like foreigners and Indian kids was pretty strong. You know, like we just naturally gravitated to each other, we're loyal to each other. And so we would literally have brawls like in the middle of the night, just somebody would, you know, group would just jump the other kid. And then the rest of us would have to wake up and help the other kid. Wow. I mean, like pranking each other at night. And um, there was a lot of like fighting and just like violence. Wow. <laughs> and I don't know how long it took me to fall into step with that, but I definitely did fall into step with that. Um, and sort of like adjusted my mentality um and yeah i mean there was there was definitely like i have good memories of of like bonding with my classmates there um i have a lot of memories of being bullied by kids you know two three years older than me um i feel like i was sort of a bully's favorite just because i was i don't know i think i was pretty innocent you know yeah. and naive and i would sort of believe anything they said um my nickname was Dum Dum, you know, so they would they would call me that, and uh, they had all these rhymes they made up. Uh, yeah, and I don't think the the Indian teachers they weren't really allowed to hit us kids that were super small, um, but of course, you know, the seniors could do whatever. Um, and there was there was like a, a lady staff member who was in charge of like. The juniors like the really young kids and I feel like they were really helpful it was like you know once in a while I could sort of get their help with something but you know there was this really strong culture of like no snitching you know if, if you got beat by a senior and you went to this staff member for help like um that'd be the end of your all of your friendships and and any hope you had for surviving the whole experience mm. uh, so that was that was pretty strongly there it's like the unwritten, unwritten culture internally, kind of like, like the street culture, no snitch or the prison culture of like, oh. you handle this internally, you don't go to the guards. So like that had been inbred within the, the layers of hierarchy of kids in India. Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think we called it narking than rather than snitching. Okay. 
concept was the same. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think uh, that that experience sort of, um, yeah, made me more independent. You know, I think prematurely in many ways, mm. and sort of robbed me of my innocence um, <clears throat> because over time as that, <clears throat> as that continued, um, you know, I learned basically that, you know, I couldn't get help from adults when something was wrong. Mm. Uh, and in, in second grade, I had, uh, on winter break, um, I was like sexually abused by a 13 year old boy. Mm. He was able to easily sort of go with the same concept and say, you know, <clears throat> don't tell anyone about this or I'll beat you up for the rest of the year. And it was like, I already knew that that threat was real from like the narcan culture. So like, I didn't understand the difference between what he was doing and the violence that was normalized by the rest of the kids. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, I didn't understand the difference. And um, that went on for uh, the duration of our like winter break. I don't know if it was a week or two weeks in Rishikesh. Um, and luckily one of my classmates looked in the window one time and saw what was happening. Cause I hadn't told him, I hadn't told anybody. He saw what was happening and he was like, Dudum, what the hell is happening in there? Like, that's not okay. And he was, I was like freaked out. I was like, no, don't tell anyone. He's going to beat me up for the rest of the year. Like, I don't want that. Like, just don't say anything. And he was like, no, Dedham, this is different. Like, you're not the one who's going to get beat up for the rest of the year. He's going to get beat up for the rest of the year because what he's doing is not okay. Mm. Nobody's okay with that. And I didn't, I didn't trust him. I was like, don't say anything. Like, you know, I probably threatened him, but he yeah. did. He went to an older kid who went to my brother and, and, you know, my brother knew what to do about it. And told the staff members he did. I saw that 13 year old kid get the shit beat out of him in the middle of the field. And he like crawled to me on his hands and knees, like with blood on his face, just like apologizing. And I was just like, wow. Yeah. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, that was, that was pretty, pretty bad. I think uh, kind of messed me up in some ways. But I'm also grateful that my classmate, um, yeah, that he intervened. I mean, he, he had the wits to know that that was different. And had he not, you know, I think it would have changed the course of my life. Um, I think the fact that my perpetrator was brought to justice immediately, you know, and it was publicly known that he had done something really offensive and terrible to me mm. like in some ways helped me get through that second year because then I had this like pity card I could play it's like you know don't beat up Dutton like he's you know he's dealing with something heavy you know like and it doesn't mean I never got beat the rest of that year but I definitely sort of got more nice treatment from people um and and it sort of reinforced this idea that like what he had done to me was wrong and he was brought to justice and he was like extracted from the school and kicked out. So 
And this was an American student for clarity. This wasn't an Indian student. This was another fellow American student who was perpetrated yeah. on other boys. Yeah. And he, you know, he had, I later learned had a lot of his own trauma. You know, he was adopted, had been through a lot of foster families and, um, you know, he, he got made fun of and bullied a lot there. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it was really just a bad environment for a young child. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And it sounds like because you ended up with a brother, you had this ally at the senior level that, and, and then your friend who, who witnessed you, it sounds like there were some um, internal hierarchies that could, could stop it, yeah. stop internal abuse in a way that probably kept going on, but if somebody didn't have the right connection to get an intervention, that stuff just kind of continued for that particular individual. Yeah, it did. You know, if, if Kershavit had gone to the staff, it probably would have been dealt with, but I would have reflected differently on him. So the fact that he went to somebody a few years older than him, who then went to my brother, that was actually the right way to, to go about that. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So yeah, that was, uh, yeah. So this is your second year. This all happened in your first year of being there, your second year. So you're six, seven years old. This is my second year, I believe. So I was seven. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And you stayed in India for many years longer. I stayed in India for the rest of that year. And then, you know, every summer I came back, I was like, I'm not going back. Right. So like, after that second year, I was like, I'm not going back. And of course I had this pity card to play. I'm like a sexual abuse victim. I'm like, you know, I don't, I don't feel safe there. I don't want to be sexually abused again. And of course my dad's like, okay, that's a good reason. Like you can stay home. <laughs> so um, I did third, third and fourth grade in the U S in like public school in New York. And um uh, third grade went really great. It was like a good neighborhood, a good public school system. I was like straight A student, like top of my class, just like feeling very like supported. I was like doing, I was like going to like karate classes and sort of like learning sort of like self-defense and sort of building my confidence physically. Um, <clears throat> and I just, you know, I think all around that year was pretty excellent. Um, but then we moved, uh, for, for whatever reason, I think the school I was in only went up to third grade, I think. And so we had to move basically into the projects. Like I've heard like rap songs about the street we lived on in, in Brooklyn. <laughs> Just like, this is not good. Uh, and so of course, you know, the districting, I ended up going to, uh, a pretty bad school. Um, and they skipped me actually to fifth grade instead of doing fourth grade. So, um, I was with older kids who were like the vast majority of them were like Eastern European black, like, you know, and then add to that, that I'm weird cause I'm wearing a turban and then, you know, I'm coming out of third grade, which is like, Oh, you're so good. Look at this beautiful picture you drew. It's like, that was like a shock. I, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was pretty bad. A lot of bullying, you know, it was obviously way more controlled than in India. And I was coming home every day. Um, but even my home life got pretty bad. You know, I think they didn't like living in the projects either. So, um, 
they were fighting a lot and um yeah that year was pretty miserable so by the end of that year I was like I'm going to India <laughs> I was like it can't be worse than this uh little did I know it, it ended up being way worse because it was a different this was D block this was the first the first year of MTA before any school existed um they just sort of had all the kids living in town somewhere they rented a few houses and they rented a few, you know, got a few teachers on salary and rented out a school building nearby. And it was just utter chaos. I mean, like, yeah, comparable to Lord of the Flies. That was the year that I was like, that I compare the most to Lord of the Flies. <laughs> Whoa, give us some perspective. I've heard this, yeah, but I didn't go to India. <clears throat> so I would really like to hear what D-Block was about. Yeah, this was, um, I think it was 96 to 97. And so this was, um, they had moved the school to Amritsar in 94 and they had two years of um, a school called Sansing Sukhasing. But the kids were living separately from the India kids. So it was, um, they had to sort of manage their own meals and housing and stuff like that but they were still plugged into the school system, you know, so there was a level of sort of structure there. Um, so that year that I came for fifth grade, cause I had to redo fifth grade cause I failed, um, was 96 to 97 and they were severely understaffed. They didn't have a school to go to. We were living, um, I think we started living in the Navas by the golden temple. And then we moved to um, Ranjit Avenue, just like somewhere in Amritsar. And they rented, I think, three or four houses in an area. And we were just living in houses that they like filled with bunk beds. Um, and there was a school nearby that was under construction that had like one of the floors completed. I don't even think it had windows, but like they were still working on it sometimes while we were there. Um, and we just had classes there, but I mean, I, I think I had my report card and it was like days, days of school missed. And it was like 45 or 90 or something. I mean, it's like out of 200 days of school, it was like, he missed like almost half of them. <laughs> it's like, I mean, there was just, they had no control. Um, yeah, I mean, they just, they were severely understaffed and the folks that were there were not the best at disciplining kids. And several times during the year, they would sort of send, Yogi Bhajan would send like a part of his entourage to go like whip kids into shape and it never worked. You know, we were just too rebellious and violent. And um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, do you feel like it was the kids being rebellious and and violent or is it that the environment there was nothing to engage the children in the environment in and of itself like there had been a paved road to have this unruly like you know what I mean it's easy to put it off on the kids but really there was no structure and no environment to support the children. Definitely. I mean yeah kids kids will sort of naturally fall into whatever their surroundings have you know like they're not going to sort of put themselves on track and the lack of structure, the lack of sort of adult supervision just meant that like <clears throat> anything goes. I mean, we we were unsupervised 
probably like 95% of the time. Like I specifically have a memory, which I've worked with my therapist on a lot, which is um, that year is like the middle of the day on a Sunday. And I'm like super, super, super tired. Like my eyes are just like shutting. And I know that if I fall asleep <clears throat> within like 15, 20 minutes, I'm going to have a painful awakening because somebody's going to be either like, you know, hitting me in the face with like, you know, a bag full of something heavy or, you know, they just throw a blanket over you, blanket beating, you know, it's like, it was really like, there was no safe place. You know, I used to try to find hiding places just so I could like relax for a second and not worry about someone coming up from behind. So like, wow. yeah. And actually that, that same classmate from first grade or from, from second grade who sort of uh, knew what to do when that uh, sexual abuse was happening, he actually, somehow I was like crying. And normally when a kid was crying, it was like you'd hit them and tell them to shut up. But he sort of noticed something different about how I was crying. And, and he was like, what's wrong? And I was like, I can't do this. Like, I, I kind of want to kill myself. I was like, mm. this is too painful. Like, I don't, I can't go through this anymore. Like, and, and he was like, don't do that. You know, he like took me seriously. Like, I was afraid that saying that, that he would say like, you know, shut up. Like, you're not, you're not serious or like, you know, sort of push me off. But he was like, don't do that. He's like, and don't think those thoughts. He's like, like, don't think those thoughts. He just said that like straight. And I was like, okay. Like just feeling that like somebody cared enough to like take me seriously and um, <clears throat> care about me enough to say something like that, I think made a big difference. And like, I couldn't go tell my parents that, you know, like that, that was a ticket to, you know, it literally felt like, like your survival rested on you not telling your parents things, you know. Help us understand that. So during all of this, there wasn't a way for you to communicate to your parents. There's no safety that you can't rest, that there's no harbor for your, for connection. Like there was no, what would happen if you would have talked to your parents or said something? Um, <clears throat> So if, I mean, if I told them something and they were in the U.S., obviously there's nothing they can do about it. They're too far away. And if, if anybody found out that I had said something, um, all of my peers and all the people probably, basically every other boy at the school would have, uh, like I would have been an outcast, you know, just, you know, beat the shit out of him, you know, show him that it's not okay to reach out for help. Um, and, you know, we're, the students are loyal to us, the students, you know, the, the staff, the adults, the parents, they're the enemy, you know, don't, don't work with them. Don't ask them for help. Don't tell them anything. If they want anything, do the opposite, you know? And so, yeah, my parents visited that year and it didn't matter. It was like, what are they going to do? Like, you know, I remember just thinking, it's like, I wish I could tell them something. I wish there was something they could do to help me. 
But like my little child brain was like, there's nothing they can do. Like, no matter what, even if they go and beat up that kid who hurt me, then what? Then I'm, I'm going to stay here and they're going to leave. Like nowhere in my mind was like, Oh, I can tell my, my dad and he will, he will then like extract me from the school, you know? Yeah. What, what, how old are you here? What, how many years in is this when you started having the thoughts of suicide and your shepherd's like, don't think like that, like trying to reconnect, re rechange your thinking process. I was, I was 10 or 11. And so in perspective, you stayed another six years. Yeah. Just, just so we're having context here. Um, so yeah. it sounds like the culture in and of itself had its way of keeping it contained. And for perspective, parents are paying for this experience for you to have in India. Parents are paying the school in India for this educational experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Especially at that time is like, I don't know what they were paying for. I mean, they were building a school, so that costs money. But I mean, you know, reflecting on that year, it's like, how much could the cost have been, you know, to rent four or five buildings? You know, I rented, I rented a house in 2006 after I had graduated. I was paying a hundred bucks a month in rent for a four bedroom house, you know? So I don't think their rent was more than, you know, a thousand bucks a month for all those houses. Um, you know, plus the school and they had to like feed kids, you know, but I mean, the cost is like nothing, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, I, I, yeah, I was just sort of in that culture and, you know, eventually I think in sixth grade, there was like a turning moment where I feel like I, I learned that if I just wasn't happy that nobody could hurt me anymore. So I just sort of like stopped being joyful in order to not be vulnerable to that. And I remember actually like the thought process of like figuring that out, implementing that strategy and seeing it work and, and just sort of like continuing with that for, for years. Um, Wow, I want to flag that for a moment. The, the, the preservation technique of not feeling our joy as a way to, to protect yourself. Like what a, what a potent thing of survival that you created inside yourself. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And I mean, it got me through it, you know. I'm, uh, I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't figured out that formula you know um so yeah i mean it, it comes with a cost like you know yeah, tell us about that what is it what does your life look like during those years of realizing as long as you don't access joy then you're you're protecting yourself so what was your energy what was your demeanor how did you maneuver through the next five or six years um i mean I, I don't know. At, at some point, 
probably within a year of that time, I started stealing a lot. And that was something that made me feel a sense of control and agency and power. Yeah. Um, you know, being able to take something from someone and not have them know who it was. Um, and I got somewhat good at it. Of course, I got a reputation for being a thief, which, you know, then if anything disappeared, then I would just be beat because they assumed it was me. Um, but many times their assumption was correct. Um, and, but, you know, having a lot of money, just like had that feeling of like, you know, oh, I have like 5,000 rupees stashed away, you know, that gave me a sense of like excitement and power. Um, and, uh, yeah, I even stole things that had no value to me, but they had value to somebody else. Yeah. And I know I actually hurt a few people that way. Um, but I'm not really sure. I mean, it's hard to fully understand like what my, what my mentality was at that time. Um, hmm. But I imagine I just sort of like shrunk to the side, you know, tried to be sort of invisible in a way and, and not put myself out there, you know? Um, and yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's pretty much how it went. <clears throat> Did you turn around and become a perpetrator as you got older in the school to where kind no. of what I've heard is that that kind of became a natural effect as you got a, a, in an older position that then you realized, oh, now I get to beat up on the little ones. Was that a part of a normal thing that you participated in that everyone did because it's kind of senior rights? No, uh, not for me. Um, I feel like each person sort of reacted one of two ways, which was they were either like, oh, now I get to beat on the little kids or they were like, that hurts so much. I don't want anyone else to go through that. And mm -hmm. I think that was more my response. Although in all fairness, my, my dad reminded me of a conversation we had, which I do remember um, on the phone when I was probably 15 or 16 and telling him they're not letting us beat up the juniors. And, you know, I'm upset about that. <laughs> and I actually remember that because what I was referring to was um, at that time, like the juniors were being protected by Akalsa High and Paramatma and they were sort of establishing a norm where like, it's not okay to beat up a little kid. Like if you're super young, if you're like below the age of 10, right? Like that's not okay. Like you seniors do whatever you want with each other, but like you're not touching these juniors, they're ours. And what ended up happening is some of those juniors would then like cuss me out and, you know, just like really sort of antagonize me. And, and I would be like, I don't know how to deal with this other than to like slap them around, you know, not, I'm not just like seeking them out and like grabbing them and, you know, beating the shit out of them when they're crying. I'm like, okay, this kid is now like clowning me and I have no way to sort of like save my ego from this experience, you know, if I can't knock him around a little bit. And um, there was this concept in India of taking Punga, mm. P-A-N-G-A. And 
it was where a junior would taunt a senior and, and the senior would then sort of like playfully beat up the younger kid, but not to the point where that kid would then be like hurt and crying. It was sort of like a way for the younger kids to like play with the seniors because they didn't really have any other way to interact with them. And so, you know, you would like call a senior names or like sort of taunt them in some way. And this was like a pattern. Actually, the, the kids that did this were actually respected more by the seniors. So it was sort of a weird culture thing, I guess. Mm -hmm. But now that system was being changed. It was like, okay, this kid's taking Punga, but I'm not allowed to hit him. Like, this doesn't make any sense to me. So I remember that conversation. <laughs> so it's, it's not like I never hit anyone. I definitely hurt the younger kids when I was 15 or whenever. Um, but I, I wasn't, I wasn't their tormentor, you know, I had several tormentors over the years and, um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't the ones constantly yelling at them to get me something. And if they didn't do it, then they would get a beating from me. And I mostly just was like, I'll just do it myself. Like I'm not, I'm not, not trying to be the boss here. So, um, there's definitely emotional abuse that I, that I, brought to younger kids um just like making fun of them and belittling them and stuff um wasn't really my thing but i definitely did that and i think it was probably hurtful to some of them it was probably it sounds like it was so normalized and it was a sense of ex ex exerting some sense of power and control outward when one yeah. felt like they had nothing and no right. support system right yeah so, yeah, I, I think as I got into, um, let's see, like high school age, um, you know, I think my eighth grade year, so would, that would have been uh, 99 to 2000, that was also a very chaotic year. Um, the, the 12th grade class at that time was pretty chaotic in nature and and they sort of established a culture among the students of, of chaos. And um, the person running the school at the time was a military commandant. He was like, a, um, he was uh, in the Marines. And so he had like a very regimented military way of running the school, mm. which was laughable to us kids and laughable to the other staff because he tried to implement this top-down sort of uh, power structure amongst the staff. And the staff were just like, I'm good. Like, you just do your thing. And they would sort of watch him fall on his face and laugh about it. And the end result was that the school was completely out of control. And we were living at that Midi-Pity Academy uh, on that land and in those buildings. Um, so we had like that structure to go off of. But I mean, I, I was in the girls dorm, like probably once a week, you know, at night or prowling around and, you know, trying to meet up with somebody and, um, ditching into town. And yeah, it's, it's like, I'm like 13 years old with one other 13 year old. just going into town at like 11 PM at night in Amritsar wow. to, like, to get a milkshake, you know, like not even something significant. It was just like, or we'd buy booze and, and get drunk or something. It's like, 
I don't even understand how nobody got like severely injured or kidnapped. Um, <laughs> people did get severely injured. You know, one of the kids a few years older than me uh, was like riding on a bus and was standing up riding on the roof of the bus and got at night and got hit in the face with a, a power line. What? Yeah, it like knocked his teeth out and he almost fell off the bus. I mean, the fact that he's even alive is is a miracle in a way. Um, wow. Yeah, he, he, I think he has like a, an implant or something now. He lost one of his canines at least, maybe two. Um, but, you know, the, the doctors were saying, yeah, if this had hit him anywhere else in the face, it would have fractured his skull. Like the teeth are the strongest place to get hit. So, yeah, it was pretty, pretty nuts. Um, uh, yeah, very chaotic. <laughs> uh, our, our room that year was uh, me and my younger, uh, it's like my best friend Hargabend from Virginia, the youngest, youngest one. Um, and we were in a room with two kids who were in my class, but they were both older. And one of them was a like um, pretty, like a pretty bad bully, sort of like love to cause kids pain kind of person. Yeah. And so we didn't really have a say, you know, we were sort of like the leftovers stuck in that room. And um, that was pretty bad. You know, I think it's pretty miserable uh, living situation um, to not really have a safe place to, to sleep or to stay. Um, yeah, that, that probably made that year pretty hard. But yeah, we would just cause mischief. You know, me and Hargovan would be like chasing each other around the school, sort of like trying to have fun. And um, yeah, it was actually some good memories that year of, of having fun with Hargovan and um, a few other kids that we would sort of do fun stuff with. We'd like stack up boxes and jump over them, or we'd like throw school chairs at each other and try to catch them when they're spinning. And we would like, uh, you know, watch Kung Fu movies and then try to mimic the thing and try to like, it was all this like toughness, sort of like really active, you know, stuff we would try to do to have fun, climb up on the roof and stuff. Sounds like um, the deepest bonds and friendship and brotherhood are created in these, you know, the, the depths of survival, like a, um, when needed, like a trauma bond. And of course the depths of this connectivity, it's like, it's more, it's, it's stronger than family because it's during these earliest formative years of safety, trust, establishment, survival, and it happened among your, your own brothers. Right. It's a real complex relationship of connection and abuse all in, in, in one mixed bag. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds right. What I, I want, I'm wondering if you can shed light on for, for people that don't come from our community, I think, and even for myself, one of the things that's such a complex amalgamation here is growing up in, you know, a yoga culture like ours, where it's talked about like heart and compassion and we're all one and kind of like this as the ethos of the kind of the outward veneer of our community. And yet a lot of times yoga students won't understand like 
how do you, you know, how do our, how do the kids grow up in this? Like, how did this abuse beating up hierarchy culture get created mm-hmm. in this larger kind of community ethos of compassion and we're all connected? Do you have yeah. anything to shed on that? I mean, I think, I think being in India, you know, so far away from our parents, from the rest of society, it was like the culture that was created there. I mean, you know, is completely separate from any culture in like a three HO ashram or like any Kundalini yoga class or anything like that. It's like, we're living in a different world, you know, like the culture there was established you know, with GNFC and, and like the original kids. And then, you know, the kids that would carry on would then show the new kids coming in, like, here's how things work, you know, like you're new here. Let me show you around, you know? So. um, And for listeners to get perspective, GNFC was the first school in India that in the early eighties, maybe like 1984, 1985, the first kind of the, the, India school program was established and that school was called GNFC. And then there's been a series of schools. So that's what Dutton's referring to that the early eighties kind of paved the way for a culture within the school to be established. That was very, very different in form and function than so say the Kundalini yoga community back in America. Yeah. And, and I saw changes in the school happen, you know, as I described, like, um, you know, like they wouldn't let us beat up the juniors anymore, but then that sort of became the norm, you know? And so as, as time went on, like when I was in my high school years, like I'm still causing a lot of trouble, but I think mainly when I was got into like 11th and 12th grade, um, the nature of the school sort of shifted towards like, a like the kids be the kids there sort of got excited about doing yoga they were sort of like more into the program. They stopped punishing kids so harshly. Um, there was more of like a cooperative, like the students and staff are working together to create a good experience for everyone. And I remember 11th and 12th grade, just like basically getting addicted to like doing new meditations. And, you know, there was sort of a, a positive experience tied into that. And um, you know, by the time I graduated, I felt like on top of the world it was like, you know, I'm going to save the world with Kundalini yoga. And, you know, I know everything. I don't need, I don't need college or whatever. <laughs> so as a bit like brainwashed and sort of like propped up to be like the savior of humanity, but, but the experience coming out of that was probably a lot more positive than, than kids who were graduating many years before I was, um, and because of, course, of the shift of the ethos towards, toward, towards like yeah. meditation, kind of like creating a new culture among the kids and the adults, so to speak. Yeah. I'm yeah. at it. Yeah. And um, then of course, you know, I, I come back to the U S and fall flat on my face because I'm an idiot, 18 year old who has no idea how the world works. Um, but like, you know, at least I sort of had some maybe positive outlook uh, coming out of it. Um, which is something, um, yeah. And I sort of just like found my way, you know, slowly over time, uh, just sort of unwinding 
things that I was taught that I didn't feel served me and um, learning to sort of balance myself, uh, you know, and, and not really buying in so much to the, uh, like we're saving the world sort of mentality. Um, Let's pause there for a second, because I think this is a really significant thing to understand for those of us that were born into this culture. Um, <clears throat> the depth of, of the, for lack of a better word, implementation in us around, we're here to change humanity. Right. That is so much a part of our upbringing. And you're, you're mentioning it as a significant point in your school in India, where that kind of became more of like the focus and like you really got more into kundalini yoga and then that becomes like this is the technology that we're going to change humanity with and that, that came so early and it's almost like it was a part of like those of us born in it's a part of our responsibility as souls right take this for like that's a heavy burden to bear right to change the world right or humanity. Right. Um, so talk a little bit about like having that sense, sense, like getting that real strong and kind of conviction, like I have the thing that's going to change the world. And then how you kind of got into the awareness, like maybe I'm not here yeah. to change humanity. Uh, yeah. Oh man. Um, well, I had been fed that line by my dad and, and my parents and, and sort of aunties and uncles in 3HO since I was a child you know, uh, and Yogi Bhajan had said when my, when my mom was pregnant, he was like, yeah, he used to be a spiritual teacher and he had 300,000 students or something. And it was this all this hype, you know, about what I was going to be and what I was going to do. And, and then, you know, we'd have Kundalini yoga, like teacher trainers come to the school, like guest teachers would come to MPA and they would, uh, teach yoga class and in the class they get up on the podium and they speak you know like yogi bhajan about the the dark age you know and now this is the aquarian age and you're going to save everyone and um you know why coming yoga is so important and sort of prop us up in that way and uh you know some teachers would come and be like okay i'm going to teach you how to see auras now <laughs> it's just like you tell a kid that and they like, I kind of believed it a little bit, you know, like I was like, okay, he's probably full of shit, but like, what if he's right? You know, like <laughs> I was like, wow, really? We're going to learn to see auras now. So cool. Um, we didn't. Yeah. So like, um, I think, you know, coming to the U S and having that mentality, it was like, okay, I got to go out and teach yoga and sort of like build that strength, build that muscle of teaching and I did a little bit, you know, I like tried to get out there and teach a little bit. And it's just like constantly exhausted and, and just like, it's just not into it at all. And, you know, I would sort of like be really gung ho and just like, oh, I'm going to teach yoga and do sadhana and all this stuff. And then I would sort of like hit a wall and just be like, fuck it all. I'm just going to play video games and like, you know, eat nachos. And and like not going to do anything productive or good for myself or good for humanity. And I would sort of waffle between that. There was almost like a, um, like a manic depressive pattern there. Um, mm -hmm. And I think just over time, like exposing myself to different things, I think 
really like relationships, like being intimate with women really helped me, uh, I don't know, connect with a different side of myself and try to like understand who I am and what my needs are. And, and, um, and yeah, like try to erase some of the guilt around sexuality and relationships and, oh man, I mean, you could do a whole episode on that. Like the amount of shit we were taught that was just, I mean, just untrue and just awful to teach a child about sexuality. <laughs> like the absolute untruth, the opposite of truths, the opposite yes. of how to relate to our own bodies, how to relate to the, the opposite sex. I remember being in my mid twenties or thirties and thinking, God, how is it we learned about kundalini as an energy, right? One of the most potent sexual life force energies existent in us and zero actual real ways of relating and dealing with sexuality with another human being. Right. <laughs> I was like, how is this possible? How can we have grown up with such potency on one end and then such complete lack of anything in the same in the same context and it started to string together like wow we got some convoluted mixed messages that mm -hmm. actually creates a disconnect inside of me not a connect and we've been trained this is what real connection is and I had to at one point realize this isn't real at all this is actually fabricated Right. sense of connectivity sense of compassion sense of community even because what is community if you don't feel safe amongst each other yeah yeah and uh, yeah I mean I could I could go on for a long time about all the things that I've discovered to be untrue about sexuality and how harmful it's been in my life to have those things in my mind and I even in this last year uh, somebody said something and I was like, wait, that's science. That's not Kundalini yoga, like theory about sexuality. Right. I literally Googled it. I was like, no way. Until that moment, I had thought that was a scientific thing. I'm 34. <laughs> like, oh my God. Yes. Crazy. <laughs> You're really bringing up an important point. Um, I want to say that you, you brought up being um, sexually violated very young. Mm -hmm. um, I'm assuming that there were more people in our, in, among our peers or, or young people that also were sexually violated. So there was physical abuse and more sexual abuse and probably just hasn't been talked about a lot. Yeah, I, I believe so. Um, I consider myself fortunate and lucky that my situation was brought into the public sphere and, and known at least by all the other students. Um, mm -hmm. There's probably others where it wasn't. Yeah, and I wanna point out that there have been other stories that have come forward of the earlier years and some of the earlier schools where there had been um, sexual predation and other, um, you know, just a culture of unsafety mm -hmm. that kind of paved the road for for your years and the later years. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it was not, not the best way to um, 
cultivated safety. And, and I think now the stories that are coming out too is that even in our back home, in our ashrams, in our communities, we learned really young, it wasn't safe to speak out loud, to share, there was no, we couldn't share with our parents. Like there was no private place, right? Because if you shared before you know what Yogi Bhajan knows and then you're being called in. And so there was this culture of just don't say anything because it's better than getting called in, right? Right. Yeah, and people thought he could read minds. I mean, my dad to this day, you know, is very adamant that Yogi Bhajan read his mind so many yeah. times. It's like I would have a dream and then Yogi Bhajan would call me and tell me about my dream or something. I'm like, all right. Good. <laughs> Not helpful, but you know, <laughs> fine, I'll leave that to your experience. Like I can't deny that happened, but yeah. So Dadam, help us um, have perspective. Obviously you're describing, you came back from India and you started, you know, started in one way and started waking up and kind of gra- getting a hold of yourself in different ways. Mm-hmm. Obviously this year has been a explosive opening. And um, so give us some perspective on like what happened because I read your mom's book um, yeah. and I got the lens into the fact that, wow, it was just this year that like as a ton of bricks, it was like, gosh, what my yeah. mom told me years ago was actually true. And now I can actually believe her. So tell right. us a little bit about that because I got that fully. My mom had left the Dharma early and there's just a gravity of like, whoa, I can believe this story right. that seemed way too out there before. And suddenly it's like, and this is, yeah. So go ahead yeah. with that. Um. Yeah, I mean, I had been in touch with my birth mom, Wa, my entire life. You know, I used to visit her in the summers. Um, she was living in L.A., so I would come out to, to L.A. for a few weeks and visit with her. And as an adult, you know, just we would chat on the phone every couple months or something. Um, and if you're we ever in the same area, we would meet up and have breakfast or lunch or something. Um, and we'd usually talk about the past and memories and and how things, you know, have played out in our relationship. And, um, you know, there's definitely, there were a few times where we sort of had uh, friction between us where I think mainly I would sort of be like, like get, get really angry or upset with her and just cut off the relationship for a year or something. It's happened at least twice. Um, and before this year, I had actually, done that I had sort of been like okay I don't I don't want to relate to you for a while like I need some space and part of that was this feeling of like inauthenticity on her like I was like I don't feel like you're engaging as a mom you know like keep talking about wanting to have a relationship to me as your son but like you're sort of maintaining this distance that's hard for me and um and we got into some things like I told her some things that I had sort of never had the courage to ask before. And we got into a bit of the past. Uh, you know, I asked about the affair and I asked about, you know, what her experience was. I, I was very angry. I was like, you know, you probably didn't give a shit. Like you just walked away from me. Like, so you probably just wanted out of the whole situation. And she was very adamant, like, you know, don't tell me what I felt like, I was devastated. Like, you know, I wanted nothing more than to come back to you. You know, it was like, 
we really got pretty raw with each other. And I feel like that was helpful. Um, but yeah, this year, you know, I think in January, uh, my dad was the one that actually told me about Pamela Dyson's book. And he was like, Oh, there's this poisonous book out. And really my first response was, Oh, so you mean I should read it? <laughs> and I literally ordered a copy like 10 minutes later on my phone. I was like, thanks dad. <laughs> it kind of backfired. <laughs> and, you know, I read it in a day and, um, and I was just like, yeah, this all rings pretty true. Like I sort of, I sort of had always assumed he was having sex with secretaries. There was like all this stuff out there with, you know, um, with like Premka and, and just sort of like, I don't know. It's like, I could see it, you know? And I sort of was like, maybe my mom was a part of that. Maybe she wasn't. Um, and, but in my mind, I'm just like, okay, it's something that's sort of like, you can't say it's okay publicly, but like, you know, it's consensual and is like, it's none of my business, but you know, it's kind of messed up, but like, I'm not really going to do anything about it. Um, and yeah, at that point, like the only person that had, that I sort of had a record of saying that was, was Premka with her lawsuit. Cause I would read, I would go online and read your SOTS website and, you know, read the, uh, wacky world yeah kamala's website and i would sort of read those things because i was curious even when i was 18 and i was like gung-ho like 3ho i was like there's nothing out there that will that exposing myself to it will make me a worse person like i'm not afraid of information like i want information if something is out there that i'm afraid of i'm gonna go read it so that i understand what it is mm -hmm. i was always sort of curious about things but I also always took it as like, oh, these people are angry and hurt and betrayed. And I don't feel that way. So like, I don't really know what I can believe about what they're saying, but Pamela's book was just perfect because it was just like, here's my experience. It was just like, here's how I experienced it in that moment with no like backwards looking judgment. And I was like, I don't see anything in this book that I can really shed like doubt on. It's like, everything about this book rings true. It's not like, you know, yeah. It's like, I don't see anything with this book that, that doesn't ring true to me. And I think that was a lot of people's responses. And, um, and then I think, you know, I reached out to my mom. I was like, Hey, have you read her book? She's like, yeah, I heard about it, you know? And she's like, I think she said she had already read it. And we sort of got to talking about things. And then she just like drops very slyly, like, yeah, I have a similar story in my book. And I was like, your book? <laughs> I was like, excuse me? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, I wrote a book, you know, 15 years ago or something. And it's, it was typed up, but I was afraid that if I showed it to you, you would just like shun me and sort of huh. you know, my dad would shun her. And she was just a afraid to put it out there basically with afraid of the consequences. And I think she had the courage to mention it to me. And, and then, um, I was like, uh, yeah, I, please send it to me. You know, I will, I I'm very eager to read it. Like, what can I do to help? Like I'll pay for shipping. Like I'll pay for transcribing. I don't care. Like I want your story. It's really important to me. And 
and she she and a friend of hers uh like typed it up because it was like from a typewriter you know like that's how old it was right uh they like typed it into a google doc and they would sort of type like a few pages at a time and then i would have the google doc and i would be reading like a few pages at a time so i'm like getting this story live as it's being transcribed it's like every day i'd be like oh like i want to log in and check but i don't want to be disappointed like i don't know if there's more pages or not um and yeah i mean when i finished the story i was just like wow yeah it's crazy it's crazy what what went through what my mom went through um and i think even after reading her book i wasn't like it, it definitely brought a lot of closure and helped me understand but i wasn't like livid i wasn't like yogi budgeon this motherfucker you know like it wasn't like that. Um, I got to that point when, when I heard uh, some some other stories of like kids who went to GNFC and GRD came back to the U.S. and were literally just preyed upon by him and his secretaries. And I was just like, "This is so fucked up. Like, this is not okay. This is not in their best interest at all. There's no way you can justify this. This is just." him being a creepy motherfucker, you know, and just preying on innocent people, innocent children and for his own desires. And I'm just like, fuck him, you know, you know, and maybe he did some good things in his life. I mean, he, you know, created this community that brought me the sense of family and bonding with these friends that I have that I went to school with in, in India with and I'm so grateful I have that support system, you know? So like, you know, I'm grateful for what he, the things that he did, they created the life that I have, but what a motherfucker. Yeah. Do that to innocent kids. I mean, just the lack of moral compass and self-control. And it's just like, there's no way I can respect him as a saint or, you know, it's like venerate him in some way. It's like, Hell no, that is not okay. You know, regardless of the good things you've done in life, not okay. Nobody deserves respect after that. You know, mm. you mm. fucked up big time. Yeah, the, the sadistic level of, of um, psychosomatic disconnection that um, got instilled in us, but also specifically on the women that got groomed and preyed upon and then yeah. we're like the aftermath of that in a way, yeah. you know, they we're getting taught one thing, right? And I, I want to go back to the point where as a child, you're growing up, you assumed, yeah, I mean, I assume he's sleeping with his secretaries. I mean, like, that was an assumption of mine as a child, too. But to actually mm-hmm. witness it, like, the level of grooming and predation in terms of the psychological, spiritual, and sexual pr- predator tools used to give up agency and to like remove a sense of like what self is that really rang true when I read your mom's story. Totally. Yeah. She was so strong and, you know, again, her story is hers, but I want to point this out because um, you're 34 when you're calling her and, and suddenly it's like, Whoa, everything that you've ever told me now I see is true. Whoa. Right. Yeah. 
I think it was after I read um, some of the, the India kids stories in the second gen group, Facebook group. I think that's when I sent that email to her where I was like, you were right. This guy's was a sick sexual predator. It it wasn't actually her book that made me feel that way. It was, it was reading the stories of people I know who I respect and care about in our community describing how he treated them. That just, it just, it's different, you know, like if you get yourself into a situation as an adult, it's like you have some responsibility there, you know, like my parents, sure. They, they were manipulated in ways by him, but they, they sought out this community, you know, they got themselves into this situation and to a certain extent, we didn't choose. We, if you take a child who was raised in 3HO and put him in the hands of the leader of that community for him to manipulate and destroy their innocence and say that they're going to be a hooker, you know, that's, that just, uh, yeah, it, it gets every fiber of my being with injustice. I'm just like, it's not okay on any level, you know, to respect someone who's done that. Yeah, and, and what rings so true for me as, as children growing up in it is like, we don't know any different. This is our normal. So reading about um, high demand groups or kind of like what are the uh, ingredients of a high demand group, also known as a cult? What are the ingredients that like what happens to the, to the generation born next? Yeah. And when you're marinated in something, you don't have a before to compare it to. Mm-hmm. We just are, and this is all we know. And so I didn't go to India, but listening to India kids, Mm -hmm. my peers and younger in in your generation, my body was like, I go through that too. Right. Me too. It's like I shared so much of, say, complex relationship with food or emotional disconnection or not knowing how to like ask for help or just certain aspects that I suddenly was seeing myself in you and I didn't go to India and I didn't have certain abuses which then told me this was the ethos of our whole upbringing it's not just the experience in India it wasn't just a unique experience it was the culture of don't talk about it if it doesn't feel good elevate keep yourself right. This unconscious, it's up right. to you and there's nobody there for you. Go meditate. Right. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it gets me excited for how I'm going to raise, you know, our, our son that's on the way, you know, like, you know, he's going to have two loving parents that are going to be present and try to create a safe environment for him to thrive and and feel joy and, and innocence. And, um, you know, I, I want to make sure he, uh, gets things like grit, you know, and, and sort of has all the tools he needs to succeed. Um, but he's certainly not going to go, you know, into situations that will rip, rob him of his innocence and, and, you know, really, uh, sort of break, break him down in ways, you know, and I'm excited for, for his future, for his life. Me too. You know, the amount of work you've done on yourself and the healing that you're um, 
courageously stepping into within yourself, within your own family legacy. Um, give us some perspective. Your mom left in what year? Your birth mom, rather? Uh, so uh, she left our family in 89 to go live with Yogi Bhajan. Um, she, she sort of like broke off from Yogi Bhajan around 91, I think, 92 maybe. Um, but then uh, she was around in the community for several years um, and, and had another kid actually in 3HO. So I have a half sister um, who's nine years younger than I am. So she, and she was born in 94. So, you know, my mom didn't really leave 3HO. She just sort of like slowly phased out, you know? really respected that about her story was I mean just yeah. it's a whole it's a whole nother ball game of of uh the playing the the level of excellence that she played at um, yeah and like what you're saying she never quote left but kind of slowly transitioned and rebuilt her esteem right. and her sense of life and and became a prominent musician that you know could carried on a whole new life I'm bringing it up more to yeah. give the listeners perspective that it was only this year like even though you had had an established relationship, it was kind of rocky because you had different stories going on, right? You were told the story of why, of, of what other people said and then her story. Right. And it was only this year that these kind of like really came together for you to get a new lens of what all of this meant. Yeah. And, and I mean, in so many ways, her book sort of just put that all together for me. It's like, okay, now I have her actual story, not, you know, a few descriptive words, um, you know, and now for I, those of you that don't know, um, Dudham's mom, her birth, his birth mom was one of the women directly abused by Yogi Bhajan. Yeah. So that, that was, uh, from 89 to 92 ish, 91, 92, she was, uh, living with Yogi Bhajan as his personal attendant. Um, and, um, yeah, I think the book has only been shared like sort of personally between people and then in the second gen Facebook group. Um, and, you know, I think she intends to share it with a wider, wider audience, but I think she, she shared with me that she wanted the second gen to read it first and have space to process it amongst themselves before um, opening it up to anybody else to read it. So I'm not sure her timing of when she wants to sort of open it up to a more public sphere. Um, but yeah, uh, I guess I should say, you know, in my introduction, I wrote that, that this year has sort of allowed me to be more authentic. Um, I think for at least 10 years, you know, I've felt this sort of dichotomy between, okay, when I'm, when I'm in Española and when I go to Guadalajara, I'm in like full Bana, you know, and I totally look the part of like the Pukka Sikh, you know, I'm doing Kirtan and um, I really love wearing Bana. I, I feel good in Bana. I feel like proud and regal and, and beautiful. Um, I love the tradition. I respect it. Um, I love playing Kirtan. I still play Kirtan now. Um, and, but then, you know, in my personal life, it's like, I, you know, don't see a problem with having a drink. You know, it's like, I'm not like getting shit faced, but like, I'm going to have a beer, you know, with a friend or, uh, you know, eating eggs, I guess that's not really a, a Sikh thing, but. Um, In our culture, it was though. <laughs> our culture was for sure. Yeah. 
Um, and then, you know, before, before I married Waigudu, before we were together, it was like the no sex out of marriage thing. You know, like I was baptized as a Sikh when I was 18. So I took those commitments, uh, seriously. And, um, over, over the years sort of realized like, okay, you know, being a baptized Sikh committing to these things doesn't work for me. Like I need space to explore myself and what works for me. And so I sort of let those things go. Um, but then I would still show up you know, and look the part in Gudwara. And it's like, I kind of didn't like that people were assuming I'm this, I'm this Pakasik, you know, huh. sort of feeding off that positivity. It felt disgenuine, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, in many ways this year it was like, okay, you know, I think, I think I'm ready to like set that aside, the like looking the part and sort of allowing people to assume things about me. It's like, okay, I'm going to, you know, shave my head. <laughs> Tell us about that. What was it like to shave your head? This is the first uh, time you ever cut your hair. Yeah, it was scary. Honestly, I had nightmares the night before of of uh, my dad and a friend Sabon like dragging me out of bed and and sort of like tying me up so I wouldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly like I was afraid and um, you know, I, I was breathing hard. You know, my my I had like Pringles in my shoulders. I was. I was like trembling a little bit, you know, when I was doing it. And luckily I had the support of, you know, our friends in Portland, like even with COVID going on, we just sort of got together and, and they all sort of helped me do it. You know, we, we did like five little braids and um, a friend of a friend of ours, who's a photographer uh, took some really great photos of the whole process. And so it was actually like really beautiful experience. Um, I wrote like a little poem that I recited before we started and, just sort of approached it as like a really sort of spiritual transformation, very conscientious. And um, I don't know, it felt right for me to do it that way. Um, I had probably spent like two or three months talking to anyone who I thought would give me advice that would be useful before deciding what to do. And I really wanted to make sure I wasn't going to regret it, even though, you know, it's just hair, it grows back, you know, but is, I mean, with the way we were raised, you know, it is not just hair. That is some yeah. serious. With all our hair to the last breath, you know, this <laughs> false idea is like, I don't know, is, is there is. Okay. So I asked my parents this question probably like 12 years ago. I was like, so if a friend of mine wanted to either cut his hair or rob a bank at gunpoint, it was like, and I was to counsel him which one he should do which one is better? And they were like, well, cutting your hair is serious consequences. I was like, you're kidding, right? I was like, this was supposed to be a joke question. Like the answer is easy. Like somebody cuts their hair, they go on living their life, everything is fine. They rob a bank at gunpoint, they're going to jail. Like, you know, they've totally destroyed their family. Like, you know, they're gonna suffer for years. And they were like, no, like your hair is your identity. It's your soul. It's your commitment. And what do you have if you don't have that? I was like, wow. Like, wow. we are not on the same page here. Like, <laughs> this is very different for you. Um, and that just has constantly highlighted the difference for me between someone like me who kept their hair and wore, wore a turban because I loved it. I loved how I felt, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And 
and you know them who do it for a different reason i think you know and and see it in a different way um and i feel like that way is it can be harmful especially when it's applied to other people in a form of judgment sure um, and so in many ways like me cutting my hair was a sort of public statement against that dogmatic you know mentality about hair it's like what does it matter if i have my hair what does it matter if i'm bald like i i you know it it sort of challenges people's perception of like you know you can't be a Sikh without having your hair or a turban. It's like, I'm a Sikh, man. Mm -hmm. Try to tell me I'm not. Like, <laughs> I'm it's not, it's not up to you to decide if I'm a That's about my relationship directly to, to the yeah, group. I have a relationship with Bonnie and with Kirtan and with, you know, my experiences, like, you know, growing up around the Golden Temple. And it's like, you can't tell me I'm not a Sikh. Like, you know, it's, and like, honestly, I kind of, you know, I'm still playing with the idea of like, maybe I'll grow my hair back and put on a turban again. Like, I don't really know what I'm going to do. And I want it to be not important to people, you know? And so long as it's important, especially to my dad, unfortunately, as long as it's important to him, I'm going to continue to sort of be in a place of like, I can't put my turban on again and have it be authentic because I can't trust that I'm not doing it in part to please him. Mm. Yes. On that note, your dad and your stepmom are still very much in the community and yeah. on the side of, of the, um, the stark denier side, correct? Yeah. And, and he's on the SSSC board now, um, even though he placed dead last in the election because they had so many resignations um, that he got, he got placed on the board. Um, and yeah, it's been, it's been a challenge. Like, you know, we've definitely fought with him more in 2020 than I ever have in my life. Um, you know, we've had, we've exchanged some heated words and <laughs> I've said some things that I probably, you know, regret. And he's said some things that I hope he regrets because they were cruel. Um, and, but somehow we've managed to sort of maintain a relationship and, you know, I still talk to him every every week or every few weeks. Um, and I think we kind of avoid the topic, but if it comes up, we'll get into it, you know? And, and I think we've sort of learned to um, try to respect certain boundaries, you know, like uh, if he says something that's particularly hurtful, that gets like a visceral reaction from me, I'm like, don't say that, you know, like, that's not okay. And, and he will actually be like, okay. You know, I hear you. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm grateful that we're able to sort of continue to try to hash things out and um, and maintain a relationship because I love him. I want him in my life. You know, he's been he's been there for me, you know, and and shown me a lot of love and support in so many ways. It's got to be a a whole different kind of compassion that you have to hold when your parents are are on the inside of this and haven't changed their stance as you see so much more and register so much more and let the puzzle pieces fit together and and you have family members that don't do that in the light of everything that's come forth yeah yeah it definitely is um and i think 
Uh, my wife's reading a book. I forget what it's called, but somewhere in there, I was saying that like compassion comes somewhat from acceptance, you know, that um, I guess in some ways I just accept that their experience is different and, and that, you know, I, I can, I can understand how important it is to them. I mean, for my dad, I mean, if you can imagine what it would take for him to accept that Yogi Bhajan was manipulating him, you know, like there's so much, like it's easy for me or you to say that, but for him to accept that, you know, that means he's taking responsibility for all the decisions along the way where he said, I'm going to trust Yogi Bhajan with what he's telling me right now. And to go back <clears throat> and question all of those decisions that he made along the way and look at how his life might've been different if he hadn't made those mistakes. That's a lot, you yeah. know, like, you know, for me or you, it may be like ripping off a branch from the tree for him. It's like, you're digging out the whole root ball of the tree. Like there's this, like, it's, it's a really deep thing. And, you know, I kind of don't think it'll ever happen. I kind of hope, you know, I have, I'm holding out hope a little bit, but if it does happen, it's going to be like 10 years from now, like, you know, to be able to look at, at oneself that way and like evaluate all of the different points in your life where your trajectory changed because you decided to trust someone, you know, it's hard. Yeah. And to add to that, I think that you, you know, like you and I, from a young age, we were seeing cracks the whole time because as children, yeah. seeing things differently, you're not, you know, and so I think a lot of young people that grew up kind of assumed, well, yeah, that's happening. You know, yeah, he's sleeping with secretaries, but we didn't assume it was sadistic mutilation and abuse. We assumed it was consensual for lack of a better word, even though in, in a teacher student relationship, there's never consent. Right. You still assume it's that, you know, like people know what they're getting into when they end up there, but you don't understand the level of actual grooming and kind of actual yeah. manipulation taking place. Right. And so like by 15, I remember kind of drifting away from the community because I saw hypocrisy, because I saw incongruency. It didn't mean I didn't love my community still. If anything, that's what kept me was the yeah. love and the relationships and the sense like, wow, I can go anywhere in the world and have the sense of family. Right. <clears throat> but I still saw all the holes. I remember wanting, uh, getting the idea to cut my hair for the first time. I'm 27. Wow. And the thing I wanted to bring up because it was so similar to yours is all I could feel was fear. It was yeah. so much fear. And I was like, Oh my God. Like, even if this is the most amazing spiritual teaching on the planet, you know, mm -hmm. that this is the electromagnetics of my, of my being and it's the antenna. And even if this is the ultimate truth, it can never be this good to hold this much fear. Right. And it can't be the only truth because there's monks that are bald and they must be connected to God too. You know, I remember thinking these things right. and leaning in to say, no matter what, dissipating this fear has got to be good. Right. And I did it as a way to be like, I have to break the indoctrination of fear 
even if I love this teaching and want to do it for the rest of my life, I want to do it because I've decided to do it, not because I'm not doing it because I'm afraid of what others say. Yeah, hundred percent. I I feel the same way. <laughs> and so your choice to grow it back or your choice to wear a turban, like to have this be inspired from this wellspring inside to say, I do this because my soul is vibrating this desire. Yeah. As opposed to I've been told this is the right way. And who would I be if I don't do this? Yeah. And actually, somewhat my experience of doing Seva at the Golden Temple helped me with this process because they, you know, the people that do Seva clean the marble every morning at like 2 or 3 a.m., they don't, it doesn't matter. You know, it's, it's kind of like longer. It's like everybody's the same there you know, and the people who get respect there are not the ones with the most beautiful turban. It's the folks that show up every single day. You never see them not there. When they're not there, you're like, whoa, that's weird. You know? And it's just like a bald guy in like a white Patani suit, you know, and I don't even know his name, but like, he just, he's chanting, you know, he's always doing his seva and it's beautiful. And I have so much respect for him. And it's like, okay, like, you know, I can, I can be a part of this. I can, I can do the things that I love, you know, around the guru and Seva and Kirtan and longer. I can do those things. And, and it doesn't matter, you know, this sort of fear around whether my hair is there or not. And that actually really helped me sort of envision myself as like sort of envisioning myself, like going to a Gurdwara and playing Kirtan with just a head cover, you know, and doing Seva with a head cover and being like, okay, I'm coming from a place of humility instead of a place of pride, you know? And I was right. like, I want that experience. I want to feel that, you know? And so. You're not going to be looked down on the Sangit if your turbid isn't perfect or looking that, and how much we grew up with the external perception around what our bana had to look like or the, what our practice had to look like. And, and that's so much of our upbringing too, is the perfect sadhana, the perfect that, you know, and a lot of adults talk about kind of this, this permeating judgment of, are you doing your bonnies? Are you doing your sadhana? Are you dressed right? Is your, is everything looking okay? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. This has just yeah. been very illuminating and, and we've covered a lot. Um, I want to move into the song you've chosen for today. Okay, awesome. Do you want to give us some perspective or um, do you want to yeah. intro it a little bit before we go there? Yeah, so this song uh, was given to me by the therapist that I worked with in Seattle. Um, uh, she gave it to me right before I moved to Portland. Um, so the summer of 2019. Um, I had been doing therapy with her for two years in Seattle. And I mean, that work was just huge. I mean, uh, the difference that I saw in my sort of symptoms of depression, PTSD, I was able to sleep better. I was able to manage, uh, like learn to have more healthy relationship to like video games. And, um, you know, my relationship with, with Waigadu, my wife, like really improved. I mean, there was just so much that I felt like she, our work together, like sort of produced. And as I was preparing to like go to Portland and, you know, that means that her and I wouldn't be working together anymore. Um, she said she found a song that made her think of my experience and sort of what I had been through. And 
the song really made me feel seen, you know, in a way that was really meaningful. And, um, and I think it, it's relatable in the sense for so many people that have been through a lot as children and how it affects you and how it sort of transform you as you become an adult. Um, and, and hopefully that it transforms you in a way that makes you sort of want to help people rather than hurt them. So anyway, yeah. that's it. Thank you. We're going to listen to this fully <clears throat> so we can get the full, um, full uh, effect here. This is Atlas 8. Was like a switch was flipped. Was just a kid who grew up strong enough to pick this armor up and suddenly fit. God, that was so long ago, long ago, long ago. I was little, I was weak and perfectly naive, and I grew up too quick. Now you all that I have to lose And all I've lost in the fight to protect it I won't let you in I swear never again I can't afford, no, I refuse to be rejected Wanna break them right and feel alive. You were wrong, you were wrong, you were wrong. My healing needed more than time. When I see fragile things, helpless things, broken things, I see the familiar. I was little, I was weak, I was perfect too. Now I'm a broken mirror. But I can't let you see all that I have to lose All I've lost in the fight to protect it I can't let you in, I swore never again I can't afford to let myself be blindsided I'm sending God, I'm falling Just a kid who grew up scared enough to hold the door shut and buried my innocence. But here's a map, here's a shovel, here's my Achilles heel. Mulling palms out, I'm at your mercy now, and I'm ready to begin. I'll shake the 
whoa, that really brought me to tears. Yeah, gets me every time. (laughs) (laughs) The being strong enough to let you in. Yeah. It really rings true. um, Because I've learned that one of the unconscious um, conditionings that we got as kids of, of his dharma is to not feel and to not know how to ask for support, yeah. not know how to let people in. Right. Because we were trained in resilience and strength. Right. And to an extent that we blocked, that we, we blocked out support because we learned so early there was none. Yeah. That's complex trauma, you know? Yeah. Yeah, the song is basically about vulnerability and how hard it is to do when you were traumatized as a kid or learned that it wasn't safe to go to an adult for help. And um, yeah, trying to trust the therapist as an adult to hold you, to hold your your pain, your inner child, to hold your needs and um, to make yourself vulnerable to that process. It's really fucking hard. <laughs> and, and it feels amazing when that therapist can meet you there and hold you. It's, I mean, it makes such a difference, um, but it's, it's really scary, you know? Totally. And whether that's a therapist or whether that's your partner yeah. or friend, whoever it is that we learn that we're safe enough to let in. Um, over the years, as I was teaching Kundalini Yoga, say from 2012 to 2015-16, um, yoga students, you know, I was a little repulsed by the marketing tactics of, of what I was witnessing. It was the first time I was back in the community and I started like just feeling like there was a marketing funnel into Sikhism and feeling like, why do they still sell this as a way into a religion? Like, I just didn't understand it. And, and then yoga students would come and just be like, it must be so amazing to grow up like you. You must have been enlightened by eight. And I'm thinking, fuck, if this is enlightenment, <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Oh man. But I say that to say we got the ethos of keep up. We got the ethos of be strong. And one of the things that I've always, always gotten is, gosh, you're so strong. And I feel like so many of us that grew up in our Dharma, like we have this perfected projection of like regal strength and pride of of who we are. And yet deep inside this depth of not knowing how to expose what's inside of us. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, I didn't know how afraid I was of the word weakness. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. And, and the fact that there are people who don't fear weakness the way that I do, is just like mind blowing to me. And, and it's like, I want that, you know, I want to be able to be weak sometimes and to not have a mortal fear of it, you know? Yeah. 
for me, that showed up as softness. Yeah, nice. By letting my feminine softness out and my body, my muscles were like overdeveloped almost as like a, an armor. My yeah. back flexors and my, my uh, core muscles overdeveloped as this like sense of protection against this like little soft little girl inside that had never been nurtured. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you for that song. Thank you for sharing your story and giving us a glimpse into your experience and growing up here. And um, what's now? Tell us about where you're at now. You're obviously about to have a baby with your wife. Yeah, I mean, I am so grateful for the life that we have. I mean, um, yeah, I've... We moved to Portland last year and there's maybe at least four or five uh, couples in Portland around our age who went to school in India who we're super close to. And they're all like about to have kids or just had a kid. So like, you know, the idea of our kids growing up together and sort of us just having each other to hang out with, um, obviously with COVID can't really do that much hanging out, but (laughs) in normal times, uh, we will be able to. Um, And yeah, we bought a house this past summer here. Um, uh, Waigadu just finished uh, her first year of residency uh, for naturopathic medicine. So, you know, her her medical career is sort of underway. And um, and yeah, my work, I mean, I just work on the computer from home. Been doing that for like five years. Um, and Postmates is owned by Uber now, so I guess I work for Uber. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, doing programming work has allowed us to sort of not really worry too much about money and finances and has allowed us to be generous with donating to charities and stuff. Um, and that's that's been really nice to be like sort of financially independent and healthy. Um, and yeah, I mean, yeah, we're going to be parents. Um, I really appreciate having cats. I feel like it's kept kept my sanity through the years. <laughs> uh, they're just amazing creatures. And uh, they like constantly, they, they make me smile really big and laugh every day. Like, I'm just so happy when I'm interacting with them. So that's like awesome. Well, I want to thank you for your voice um, as uh, you know, a child of our Dharma and speaking out at this time and everything that you've gone through and the complexity of, of what you've gone through. You know, the multi-layers, I think of the, the story in your mom's book of, of when you're four saying, I know you all aren't telling me the truth. What's really going on? You know, at four, like, yeah, and, and that that's still coming forth, that your soul's voice is coming forth to say, my community matters. The people I was raised with matter. My brothers and sister matter. This community is mine. Yeah. I'm not letting it be taken away no matter what. And I just think that's such an important stance as kids of our own Dharma, that this is our community. We built this. This is where we're from. And it, it, we get to recreate it by putting truth into it. Yeah. Thank you for seeing that. Nice. Yeah. And, and you, you stand for that. And even your actions are showing that so much. And um, I just really appreciate the strength that it takes to share such vulnerably 
and to share um, parts of the story that I'm sure you're still reconciling yeah. and, and figuring it all out. And that's so much about what our short stories are about is it's not that we got any of this figured out. It's that we're mm-hmm. giving, um, we're giving a glimpse into the interior of what it means to realize that what we thought we had is very much more complex and convoluted and together we get to unwind it and rename it and recreate it. Totally. Yeah. Thank you. Anything else you want to um, leave with the listeners, either uh, no. of our peers or any other nature? No. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you to all our listeners. Again, this is the uncomfortable conversations podcast, the untold stories of the three HO Kundalini yoga community. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Thank you to our guest, Dadam Kalsalitz. Thanks, Kirnishan. Thank you.